Hello and welcome to Down with the Patriarchy. I'm Ben Richards. And I'm Elia Jo. He's as white and male as they come. And she, well, she isn't. But together, we're hoping to explore those marginalised composers that we don't know so well. That's right. So, episode five. Episode five. Five is a lovely number. If we were ever to go, this isn't working, let's give up. I reckon this is the one to stop on. Yeah, so maybe write into us and let us know. <laughs> or don't, we're just going to keep doing yeah, it regardless yeah, of whether you, you like it or not. Well, the thing is, is that if, if you don't say anything and we carry on and no one listens, it's not the end of the world, you know? No, exactly. We can pretend we're famous. It gets us up on in the morning or stays, keeps us up. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't say that out loud. My mum will turn me off. <laughs> <laughs> so we are having our first discussion about two marginalised musicians. Yeah, legends, I believe. Legends. Maybe also two of the people who are probably closest to being in the canon of anybody that we've spoken about yet. Yes, definitely. Okay, should we announce who we're talking about? Will each say one each? Um, Well, yes, but maybe not at the same time, because I don't know which one you're going to say. Okay, that's a really good point. I'll go first. Yeah. Lily and... Nadia. Boulanger. Exactly. That's so, it. That's the tweet. Yeah. In case you didn't get that, we are going to be chatting about, as I've actually written in my notes, Lily et Nadia Boulanger. Oh, Ali, so, you re- oh, please don't tell me you've drawn like a baguette next to that. or No, but I have done it in red, white and blue spots. Oh, God. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I will just give you a little overview of their life and then we'll just have a bit of a chat about their music, why maybe they're not so well known. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start by telling you about both of them and then I'm going to split off like a river. <laughs> you go for it, Ellie. You go for it. Thanks, Ben. So, Lily and Nadia were sisters. And born to Ernest Boulanger, who was a singing teacher at the Paris Conservatoire. And I am just, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it correctly. So I'm really sorry if this offends anyone. But Raisa Mishetskia, who was a Russian princess and singer. That sounds like, so, that sounds like a job that you, you'd be very good at, Ellie. Of what? Being a Russian princess and singer? Yeah, I think that suits you quite well. Oh, I would love to be. Oh, don't get me started on royalty. Anyway, yes, so she was a singer and she was a princess. So kind of unusually for this podcast, but just kind of musicians in general, they were born very high up in society. Often 20th century musicians, we have stories about them managing to make it even despite their really difficult living conditions and despite growing up in poverty but not for these two these two were born into high society Ernest Boulanger's parents were Frederick Boulanger who was a cellist and Frederick was married to Marie-Julie Halinier oh god you're really on it today that's quite I'm so on it I'm gonna have to stop myself from using the little cute Parisian accordion cue that Anka has You'll have to stop me from doing that. I don't think I'm going to be um, able to stop you from doing that. <laughs> and she was a mezzo-soprano. So they came from a very musical family. From a really young age, both of them showed a lot of musical promise. And they studied composition with none other than Gabriel Faure. Ah, oh, the big daddy. Big daddy of French 20th century music. 
So when she was nine years old, Nadia started attending the Paris Conservatoire. Very nice. At nine. And Lily, who we will get on to a bit later, would accompany her to class. But Lily was very unwell. She passed away aged 24, having spent her entire life growing up with pneumonia and intestinal tuberculosis. And she just really, really, really suffered. But I will get onto her in a bit more detail in a minute or two. So the pair of them grew up very musically and very privileged. So they had amazing opportunities to study with Foray and to kind of get the best of their musical education. But Florence Foster Jenkins, for example, mm. had a lot of privilege and was given the opportunity to do all these big recordings and big concerts when she could not sing, and it was purely financially that she was kind of given this platform. Yeah. But Lily and Nadia were really, really talented girls, and she can't do it herself because she's not here, but I'm just going to tell you that Lily had perfect pitch. And because Lily... Oh, God. <laughs> and because Lily had perfect pitch, Foro was kind of obsessed with her. He loved that. Do we, do, and, we, um, do we know anybody with perfect pitch, Ellie? Do we? I don't know, have, do we? I I mean, do I have perfect pitch? Regrettably, I think the answer to that question is yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes. Where is so no wonder, no wonder you in. love that fact about, about Lily, that she happened to have the same thing. I have written it in capital letters then. <laughs> but because she showed this promise, she had, she had pitch. Yeah. She studied organ with, I'm sure you'll like this, she studied organ with Vienne. She did, yes. Which I found really interesting. That's a bit of a clang, that is, isn't it? It is a huge clang. And then we've got Nadia, who studied organ with Vidor. So the two of them are just like, wow. Anyway, back to Lily. So she played the piano and the violin and the cello and the harp and she sang. So she she was a clever little girl. She she kind of dominated all of the string instruments she could find, which is why her string writing is so fantastic. But again, I'll go on to that later. When she was 19 years old, she was the first woman ever to win the Prix de Rome. I'm really on the French. For her composition, Faust de Helene, mm. which I recommend you go and have a listen to. It's brilliant. It was written in just four weeks and it was a full cantata and she wrote it in a month. It's half an hour long. It's half an hour long. She was 19 years old and it was done in a month and she won this prize. And just to add another bit of a clang in there, she was the first woman ever to win that prize. Her father won it before her, didn't, didn't, didn't he? Yes, he did. But this is the bit that winds me up. This is where we start getting into our our little troubles. Yeah. Obviously, it had only ever been men who'd won this prize. Yeah. So she was the first woman to win it, but was she allowed to win it by herself? No, she was not. No, she was not. No. I've written in my notes, woman, not good enough to compete with man, woman plus man winning, better is what I've written. <laughs> so she shared prize with Claude Delvin Koch. Yeah. I would love to tell you what he composed, but honestly, this is going to sound really petty. I didn't care to find out. She deserved to win that prize by herself. It's not really the, anyway, it's not really the point of this podcast, you know. Exactly. It's not, wants, let's not platform white male composers. If, the, if someone wants to 
creates because actually when i was looking through the winners of the prida room i was like i don't know who any of these people are so if somebody wants to do an entire podcast dedicated to forgotten romantic french com- male composers then feel free because we're not then i feel like that's what you're gonna do that's more your kind of thing isn't it well yeah but i, but I feel i don't want to compete with myself <laughs> you know no that's completely fair Anyway, I think this is where it gets a bit sad because having developed pneumonia at just two years old, mm. she's really struggled her entire life. So also she won that award, I think, whilst battling intestinal tuberculosis, which is ultimately what killed her five years later. Yeah. So she had a tricky life health-wise, but she used it to get the most passion out of her music, I think. She did the whole tortured musician thing and ran with it. And she did a pretty good job. I'm going to get onto that bit later. Mm. Anyway, Nadia, when I was doing my research, the first thing that I've written down, because I just, I think it's so important, is that she determined the landscape of the 20th century. She stopped music just being by and for white men. And suddenly this woman was kind of at the core Mm. of all of the compositions of these, these straight white men who would come for the rest of the century. But I'll get onto that. I'm getting carried away again. So she studied at the Paris Conservatoire between 1897 and 1904. She, as I said, she studied composition with Foray and organ with Vidor. She composed lots of works for choirs. She composed lots of chamber orchestra works, lots of symphony orchestra works. And one of her cantatas won second prize in the 1908 Prix de Rome. So the pair of them were a powerhouse sisters. Mm. But... When Lily passed away, Nadia lost everything. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know where to go. And she kind of felt like all of her composition had lost meaning. She knew that out of the two of them, she wasn't the one destined for composing. She knew that Lily was the composer of the two of them. Mm. And she felt like she would be doing her a disservice if she continued composing and getting all the credit for it. So she felt like all her compositions became useless. And instead, she used her talent to nurture musicians of the future. Mm. I'm just going to ask you, Ben. Yes. Can you name a couple of 20th century composers? Oh, well, I probably... Leonard Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein, absolutely. Banging. Um, And since we're on the continent of America, maybe... Uh, Aaron Copeland. Yes, get some some of that hoedown the music in. Hoedown. And what about a couple of famous conductors? Conductors. Well, I mean, Daniel Barenboim. Yeah, and more obvious than that. A bit close to home. Maybe does a bit of stuff at 4.15. Maybe a bit of John Leonard Gardner. Sounds about right. Yeah. And listeners... I'm sure you are fully aware that was completely unscripted. As yes, no, completely unscripted. I don't want anyone accusing us of scripting (laughs) these podcasts. No preparation goes in. It's all from the heart. Nothing, you know. It's all off the top of our head. It's all our own knowledge. Yeah, yeah, this all comes. This is all. We have all this knowledge stored from birth, actually. (laughs) Um, So uh, she taught all of those people. The biggest musical names of the 20th century are kind of her responsibility. So she was taught by Foray, as I've mentioned lots of times, and she passed on that incredible musical knowledge with her own female lens to all of these amazing, not straight, necessarily, white male composers. And 
she then became one of the first women to ever conduct so many major symphony orchestras, including the New York Phil. Yeah. So not only did she teach John Elliott Gardner the ropes and told Daniel Barenboim effectively just exactly how to do his job, but she then went and did it herself massively. She didn't just conduct a local, I don't know, Solihull Symphony Orchestra. No offence, Solihull Symphony Orchestra. Big you gave me a lovely platform. But it was the New York film. And then she became the first ever woman to conduct our beloved London Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. It's huge. Huge stuff. Huge stuff. And I really love this quote that I just had to include. So I think, and I'm sure a lot of people would agree, including Royal Holloway Symphony Orchestra conductor Rebecca Miller, conducting has for so many years just been such a male-dominated world. And it's definitely balancing out now. But I think you'll like this quote, Ben. I've been a woman for a little over 50 years and have gotten over my initial astonishment. As for conducting an orchestra... That's a job where I don't think sex plays much part. So she's saying that she was astonished by being a woman in the first place. Yeah. But she doesn't think that that affects <clears throat> conducting at all, which I, I love. I and can, I think that's completely true. And also that I can just the subtle sarcasm in that. Um, Literally. <laughs> like I've gone over how, oh my, oh, I'm a woman. Oh my gosh, I'm a woman. Oh my God. Oh my God. What are these things? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I know. And then she just, when she just goes on to say, but that doesn't have any role in whether I can conduct or not. Yeah. That's just nothing to do with it. And I think we would definitely agree with that. Mm -hmm. I think Merga, our lovely CBSO conductor, would completely agree with that. What a queen. Absolute queen. Yeah. Isn't she? So she died on October the 22nd, 1979, Mm -hmm. in Paris at the age of 92. So she was so tortured by the death of her sister at 24, but then she went on to live this incredibly long life and serve the musical, not community, that's the wrong word, but serve music, I'm just going to go with music, so well and so beautifully for so many years. And I think she just completely paid homage to her sister, whom she loved so much. But anyway, so there's your little biogs about the pair of them. Yeah. Now I just want to talk a bit about their music. I've got lots of snippets of reviews and comments that I found on various websites, Classic FM and more obscure websites. But one of them that I'm going to talk about, because it's a bit similar to stuff that we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, is it's no surprise that she won the award, as in the Prix de Rome because her music is so similar to Wagner and Debussy, which, I don't know, I didn't like that, because I don't think it is. I don't think her music is hugely Wagnerian. I I get that she could be compared to Debussy, Mm. because she's got this gorgeous (laughs) idiomatic use of strings in all of her music, which definitely stems from her talents as a string player. Let's remember she played the violin, the cello and the harp. I don't know how anyone can play the violin and the cello. They're so so different. I'm so bad at the cello. It's actually laughable. But I think her music is, to me, is much more Messiani, Debussy, Foray, plus being a really strong woman. She kind of took the label of being a feminine version of Wagner and a feminine version of Debussy and ran with it. And we've talked a bit about the negative connotations behind the word feminine 
yeah. when talking about music before. Mm. But I think here, she knew that she was dying. She knew she was really, really unwell. And so she put all of her energy and strength into her music. So her music is really like a really robust version of Debussy and Foray and Messian and all of these things mixed together, which I think is very lovely. Um, she the, the final work that she produced before she died was A Pier Yezu. Yes. And her sister, Nadia, actually transcribed it while she was on her deathbed. So I thought that was a bit of a Mozartian-esque story it's a haunting it's gorgeous it piece is, of music so it's for soprano solo isn't it i think yeah yeah and it, it's just absolutely gorgeous so 2018 we celebrated the centenary of her death i say celebrated but it, i'm all mean celebrated her life and i found this quote on i think it was yeah classic fm this year marks the centenary of her death perhaps 2018 will be the year her genius gets the attention it truly deserves and I only wrote this down because I'm sure absolutely nobody cares. But that was the year that I found out about Lily Boulanger. I came to Royal Holloway. This is another come to Royal Holloway moment. And it was Welcome Week Orchestra. And I was going to go to Durham. I'd set my heart on it. And then I freaked out because it's a bit far away. So I came to Holloway instead. And I hadn't applied for any orchestras or scholarships or anything. So I just turned up not knowing what to expect. And Rebecca gave us the music for Lily Boulanger's De Vatin de Pruton. You're welcome for that. Very impressive. That is that is one of my favourite pieces of music ever since since I've heard it. It's kind of just stuck with me, mm. and I I just think it's gorgeous. Go and listen to it. I will write that down in the show notes because obviously it's it's a very complicated name. But this de matin de Breton means of a spring morning, and I think when you're listening to it, you will not be able to listen to this piece without hearing dewdrops on leaves and without hearing frogs and rabbits jumping around and you can practically hear birds chirping. And daffodils and... and... Daff you, you can hear the daffodils. It just sounds like new life. There's and... a real freshness, a real sort of um, awakening from the winter chill to it. There's a sort of... Absolutely. Yeah. It just, it sounds warm. It sounds like you can kind of hear bits of frost just melting. And mm. I, I think it's a brilliant piece of music. And then she wrote, this is another one, De Soir Triste, which was the opposite, which mm. means of a sad evening. Oh. Um, so the, the pair of these pieces contrast really beautifully together. And there's a lovely album with both of them on that I urge you to go and listen to on Spotify. And it's a lot darker a lot more brooding a lot edgier and i think that it just shows that her music has such an ability to evoke all emotions she doesn't just fall into the trap of writing floaty french music and that being it she puts so much gut into it i think that's actually something that i've realized throughout this whole podcast when you're trying to research a composer and think about them and, and how they their what their sound is and i think with some composers it's very it's quite easy actually because you listen to a piece of music and within the first bar you're like this is x y or z mm -hmm. um but what i've realized is that many many more composers are much more chameleons yeah, I think definitely. you know, and I think that we forget that <clears throat> that I mean, a people's composition styles evolve over time, but also just that that actually that I think you probably wouldn't want to sit in the same space 
creatively for all of your life and for all of your music and for different forces as well. Like it, it does make a difference. I mean, I, I was listening to, and again, I'm going to butcher this, but a song cycle, Carrière uh, dans le ciel, which does sort of sit permanently in a state of, I feel like you're sort of semi-suspended in midair, mm-hmm. um, in a dream state. And particularly when it's scored for soprano, it's really high, like all the time. Yeah. It's really high. And I, I mean, it's 40 minutes long. And I, I feel like you would really need to be on your top game to perform it. I mean, is it impressionistic? I don't know. I feel like that's such a contentious term in in, it is, isn't in it? music history that it's very difficult to label something as that. But I think it does have that ethereal quality. Um, it does. And doesn't CL mean heaven or sky? Um, I don't know why you're asking me that question. Um, I don't know why I'm asking you that question. I, I literally had this conversation with James about two days ago. And I think the word for heaven is the same as the word for sky, which is really lovely. And I think it's CL. Hang on. Clarier dans le ciel translates as glades in the sky. It's a wonderfully evocative name for a piece. And actually, sometimes when you hear a name for a piece, you're like, why is it called that? It doesn't sound anything like that. But that sounds exactly like it sounds. Exactly. And that's what I felt about the first piece I talked about, the orchestral piece, De Matin de Priton which just sounds like pitter-patter rain, sun and joy and spring and sheep running around. I just, I love it. Mm. I think it's so evocative and I love it. Now let's just have a little chat about Nadia. Mm. So I fell in love when I was doing my research. I know a lot of work by Lily Boulanger, but I didn't know anything by Nadia. I found a collection of her art songs. There's a really gorgeous album that, again, I might just put in our little show notes. Mm. And one of them is called Versailles, and it's just heartbreaking. It's got all the tender lyricism of Foray and all the anguish of art songs by Ivor Gurney. And I urge you to listen to that because I think it's beautiful. And I will definitely keep those by to have a look for next time I'm in need of any song for an audition or something because it's just gorgeous. Mm. Then there's another one just called Chanson, which just means song. And that one is, I just wrote, cute. It's just so playful and sexy and (laughs) Parisian and it just oozes like, Oh, oh, listen to that. It's really good. So I think her art songs are banging. Did you have a listen to the pieces for cello and piano by any chance? Do you know what? I'm going to hold my hands up here and say that I didn't. That's fine. I just wondered because I've just written a little note about each of the movements. Well, I loved these. Tell us all about them, Ellie. I will tell you all about them. The first movement... I just wrote, like the swan, but says more. Right. So imagine your lovely Saint-Saint swan. Saint-Saint swan. Uh, <laughs> but it's a lot more, I mean, the swan was obviously about a really gorgeous, elegant creature, but this was a lot more personal, I think. Yeah. It's a lot more human. Mm. And I'm not speaking on behalf of any swans, but no. I think humans have more emotions than swans. I think we have a bit more turmoil and a bit more stress. And you can hear that 
this podcast has taken a really weird turn. It has, hasn't it? Swans, sheep. What else did we have last week? How 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 cows, many cows, cows you can buy for fourteen hundred pounds? Yeah, actually, if you are a swan and you have an opinion on on the relative motions <laughs> of the swan and the human, please do get in touch. Um, please do. I don't mean to speak on behalf of you, but no, swan I'm just speaking from my own experience here. Yeah, your own um, experience with swans. <laughs> Okay, let's. I'm going to try and pull it back, but I'm going to. What did the second movement remind you of, Ellie? There you go. The second movement, Ben. There we go. Is very simple, right? And hymn-like, and very, very plain. But then it lulls you into a full sense of security of, ah, this is nice. Mm. Because then you get to the third movement, and you know what I just wrote in capital letters. Itchy. Itchy. Phenomenal. So good. It's called Vite et Nervousement. Yeah. Which means fast and nervous. Oh my gosh, it's so good. It just is so agitated and brilliant. And itchy. Uh, yeah, itchy. So good. Anyway, yeah. What do you think, Ben? Do you like them? What, the pieces that I haven't listened to? Or... No, the boulangers. Oh, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... It's a really interesting one, actually, because I think when when people go, hmm, female composers, I think people go, Fanny Mendelssohn, Clara Schumann. And then I, I feel like the third person normally people think of is probably Lily. And I think, actually, I'm glad that you brought in both of them, because I think talking about Nadia is really important, because I think it, it reinforces the importance of teachers and music educators, I mean, any educators. And the fact that I think we forget that behind that person there is always a teacher teachers that inspired them that guided them they didn't come out the womb no. writing amazing music um, exactly. and it's a it's quite remarkable that this no-nonsense french lady traveled the world and taught i mean as i watched a video yesterday literally the guy was like she literally taught everyone and it's not it's not entire it's not completely exaggerated because she pretty much did she, she did, and even if not directly, then indirectly. Yeah, I would wager that she probably was the most soft, had the most soft power of any figure in 20th century music. Yes. So she did more to subtly determine the course of 20th century music than any other man or woman. And I think that's, no, that's I quite remarkable. Agree. And in terms of Lily, I think that it's another sort of classically brief life, uh, the tortured artiste, but... It's a wonderful repertoire. It's you know, it's not a huge repertoire, but I mean, it's uh, like Coleridge Taylor last week. You know, didn't live for very long, but I think you know the fact that she was the first woman to win the Prix de Rome, and the fact that her music is probably some of the most well-regarded of all music in the female canon. And actually, I think I think it's interesting to think about. Is Lily Boulanger now reaching the point where she might be almost canonical? I like to think so. Yeah. And I think this is an important point because I think whilst most weeks I think it's important for us to highlight composers that most people won't have heard of. I think mm. this week we are highlighting composers that people may have heard of. Yeah. But I think it's worth talking about the fact that that she is very much on the cusp of that group of people. And why do we think about Ravel and Debussy before we think of Boulanger? And is there a good answer to that question? I don't think there is. I don't think there is. No. I think the answer is embedded in, in a lot of unconscious bias. Well, this actually brings me on to a brilliant little section of a review that I found, yeah. which I would love to read out. It's for In Memoriam, 
It is entirely characteristic of the frail lily's best work in its strength and its bigness of gesture. The keyboard language perhaps is not wholly mature, if one can use that word of a 20-year-old composer who died at 24, but it is individual even in its derivativeness. At times it sounds much like Foray, yes, but more often like Foray's older, tougher brother. Much of it is dark, bare and austere, even its most pianistic gestures are boldly firm. So I love that, Foray's tougher, older brother. It's a weird one though, isn't it? Because again, there's there's all this, it's very easy to paint her, not only as a woman, but the, she's a young woman, she's a young, ill woman. So therefore yeah. she's a frail woman. Exactly. And I feel like, not to presume that Nadia and Lily are one and the same, but if you watch any of the videos of Nadia Boulanger teaching people on the piano, you'll very quickly realise that there was no messing about with her. And I, and I imagine that Lily probably had some of those characteristics as well. I can't imagine that she would have been as successful as she was if she was, as people may like to think, just another frail, ill woman. And actually, what does that, what does that say, actually, that she overcame that? She wasn't... Okay, so she was well off. She had lots of money. But then lots of composers came from money. Francis Poulenc is a brilliant example of somebody mm. who came from lots of money and just enjoyed life and did a lot of composing. But just because you have money doesn't necessarily guarantee that life is going to be easy and and nothing can stop you from being ill. You exactly. Know? And so the fact that she's had to overcome that and not even overcome it because, of course, she didn't overcome it because ultimately it killed her. She had mm. to live with it, alongside it, fight it and somehow still produce... You know, I, I'm not sure that I could even think of producing music half as good as that when I was top form, let alone trying to produce that music when, you know, your stomach's inside out and you're in constant pain. And, you know. and you're 24. Yes, it's it's remarkable. It it's, is. It's a bit depressing when you're 22. and <laughs> Ben, you're a podcast host. Well, I mean, yeah, well. Don't, 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 don't. Because you know, people who don't know me, that my ego does not need any more nursing. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's definitely worth us having more and more conversations about Boulanger, both the Boulangers, in the sense that they're nearly there. And I think there's a lot of this music which will be, we're going to put a female composer in this programme, or we're going to put a black composer in this programme to give them a bit more notoriety and a bit more yeah. of a spotlight. I think now is the time for, for Lily's music specifically to be not in that category but just to be music good music yeah and that does draw up interesting questions about whether we should be doing that conscious gatekeeping in terms of who qualifies to then become part of the music but i think i think the reason why i say that is more because she's now in a position where she's well known enough um, Mm -hmm. in in our world that it makes sense to just have her in the canon for her to just be there you know if debussy's there then why is boulon yeah exactly there's one final quote that i really liked So there's a book by Caroline Potter all about the Boulangers and how they deserve more notoriety. Mm. And Goodreads, which is the website that was recommending the book, Mm. uh, was writing about it. Despite an unusually privileged upbringing, Nadia and Lily Boulanger exemplify the struggle women experience when attempting to enter the professional music world. Yeah, And I just really liked that. It just says it so simply and so plainly. It was difficult for them, but Nadia managed to influence an entire generation of male composers yeah. and continues to do so even after her death. 
And then Lily has just composed some of the most fantastic music of all French history that just deserves more recognition. Yeah. And they struggled in so many ways trying to get that notoriety. And one of the biggest facts of that was, of course, their gender. But I like them. Yeah. And do you know what I think is even more impressive is that both of them are more well-known than their father. Yes. You know? They, they did it. That says a lot. <laughs> that says a lot, I think, because they shouldn't be from the perspective of who they are. What they're born into. If history is to run its course in the way that we expect it to, then... Exactly. But I mean, what, what an amazing double whammy. Two... What a pair of people. Yeah. I'm so jealous of them. Imagine, imagine what it must have been like. Imagine the arguments they had as children. Like, oh, you stole my theme and very ancient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to, you stole my hairbrush. Yeah, so, okay. but I'm glad that we've got the bona fide music educator. I think because we've decided that we're going to talk about conductors and, and performers and things as well as composers. As just, yeah, I think forward. that's really important. Yeah, so. Are we swiping left or right? Well, I don't think we can swipe left after all that. Absolutely not. So, yeah, let's swipe right. I th- Thank you. Actually, if anybody has a composer who thinks might challenge us to swipe left, do get in touch because I'm waiting for that day. I'm waiting for there to be a Twitter storm. Waiting for us to reject someone. Yeah, to be like... For, mm-hmm. for, for us, a pair of students to go, you're not good enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because actually what's hap- what's really happening is we are becoming the people that decide who is in and isn't in the canon. That's going to happen. We are the gatekeepers, Ben. Yeah, I'm not comfortable with that level of power. <laughs> On that note, I think that we can firmly swipe right and say thank you to such a lovely pair of sisters for giving us such wonderful music history. Yeah, absolutely. Fab, I'm going to go and play in the snow. (laughs) Are you? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go and socially distance tune some of my pupils' violins because in a week, all of them have died. Not the children, the violins. Um... (laughs) Thanks for clearing that up, Ellie. <laughs> All right, let's go, Ben. Okay. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next week. See you next week. <laughs>